0: From Washington, this is Talking Tax, I'm David Schultz. So remember the flat tax? If you thought the idea went extinct along with the somewhat quixotic Steve Forbes presidential campaign back in 1996, think again. While the idea of a flat tax at the federal level indeed has not shown any signs of life, at the state level, it's a different story. Four states, Arizona, Georgia, Iowa, and Mississippi, have adopted flat income taxes this year, and it looks like Oklahoma may soon join the club. Today, we're going to be talking about why this is happening and about whether it's a good idea. And on that last point, we have two perspectives for you that could not be further apart. Kamalika Doss sees things from the liberal point of view. She's a state tax policy analyst at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. And she is definitely no fan of the flat tax. But first, we're going to hear from someone who is. Catherine Lawhead is a senior policy analyst at the More Conservative Tax Foundation. She spoke with Bloomberg tax correspondent Michael Bologna about why she thinks states are making the right call here and about what a flat tax actually is.
1: Well, a flat income tax is levied at one single rate. So all taxable income is taxed at one flat rate under a flat or single rate tax and under a graduated rate or progressive income tax, the rates get higher as income increases. So you have one rate on one amount of income and then the next segment of income is taxed at a higher rate. And then once you reach another threshold of income, that's taxed at a progressively higher rate as
2: well. We've historically in the United States seen both of these uh, models, but um, my understanding is that the flat versus graduated system has been sort of uh, static over the decades, uh, with most states opting for a graduated model. Uh, Now, how has that uh, changed uh, more recently, I guess?
1: Yeah, it's been a really interesting development this past year, because over the history of state income taxation, state income taxes have been around for about 110 years. And so during that time, we've seen some graduated rate taxes, some flat taxes, but we've seen very few states transition from having a graduated rate tax to a flat tax. In the course of their history, we've only seen four states do that. Um, But now within the past year alone we have seen seen four additional states enact legislation to do just that. And so there's definitely been a strong shift toward flat taxes in this past year. There's a lot of interest in trying to reduce those rates and in many cases flatten out those brackets so that there's one single rate on all taxable income.
2: And and some states too, even with that that have graduated systems they're, they're flattish in structure, are they not? Or
1: Yes, a number of states do have relatively flat uh, graduated rate taxes. So they the top rate kicks in at a relatively low income level. And that was definitely the case in Georgia. So that made it a lot easier to just flatten out those brackets because they weren't adding much meaningful value there. The Tax savings from having a graduated rate at all was very minimal, and so they were able to reduce the rate significantly enough that it'll be a significant tax cut for all income taxpayers. And it wasn't too difficult to try to um, enact legislation in a way that would hold people harmless.
2: And what what's been sort of the rationale for this uh, quick turnabout? Uh, uh, how how? how How did this policy discussion, you know, uh, stack up this year and why was it sort of possible?
1: Well, it's been something that economists have generally agreed is a more neutral form of taxation for a long time. So I think one of the things that made the conversation more urgent this year is the fact that with the rise in remote work, states are really competing for new residents and new businesses right now. They are seeing income tax reductions as a way to try to attract more people. Some states are even trying to phase out their income taxes as a way to attract new residents. So I think they are seeing a flatter tax as a way to attract more residents. They're also simpler and more transparent. And that's not just from the standpoint that it's easier to calculate, although that is one thing. If you know your rate is 5%, you know that you might have a standard deduction or some other amount of income that is exempt right off the bat, but then you generally know about how much you are paying. Um, So that is one reason they become a little more simple, but beyond that, flat taxes are actually more simple for revenue forecasters to predict how much they will generate in a given year, and it's also easier to estimate how a rate change would impact revenue. If um, you have a flat single rate, you can compare current revenue or revenue forecasts to what has been brought in in the past, and it's a lot easier to say that a rate reduction or a rate increase of X amount would bring in or result in a revenue loss or tax cut of a certain amount.
2: Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming there's some uh, tax administration ease that uh, a state might achieve as well, right?
1: That is definitely one thing. They do help bring ease of administration uh, in general, having fewer rates, having fewer different provisions in the income tax code creates a simpler tax code. It's more predictable. But another big reason for flat income taxes is that they don't discourage additional labor and investment on the margin. And so when you think about it, workers and businesses make decisions regarding work or regarding investment based on the next dollar of income, not based on past dollars of income. So it's really that top marginal rate that matters in terms of attracting business investment. And so if you have a flat rate that creates more predictability, Um, it's less likely that those rates will be increased or change a whole lot in the future. And so that creates some amount of stability when it comes to tax planning and investment decisions. And it also just avoids penalizing additional labor and investment on the margin. And so that's better for the economy, better for economic growth.
2: Well, let's talk for a minute maybe about um, what tax fairness, because flat taxes sometimes get a a bad name for that. Um, uh, And say a state is imposing maybe a 5% tax. Uh, a flat tax. And if you're imposing 5% on someone who earns $50,000 and 5% on someone who earns 250, um, is that really equitable? I mean, the person earning $50,000 arguably needs that 5% worse than the higher income uh, person.
1: Well, one of the things states do is they have standard deductions and personal exemptions. And a lot of benefits that inject progressivity and target additional relief toward the lower end of the income spectrum, things like earned income tax credits, child tax credits. So a large share of income is not taxable at all in most states. So a lot of states conform to the federal standard deduction. So well over $12,000 for single filers, well over $24,000 for married filing jointly. I think it's even more than that now. And so these states exempt that amount of income right off the bat, and then income above that level would be subject to a flat rate. And so that avoids penalizing additional labor and investment. Higher income people still pay a lot more in income taxes under that sort of tax structure, but it's not adding an additional penalty for making additional income in the same way that a graduated right tax would do where you could have quite low rates on some of that first income. But once you make more and more, you're getting more and more of that taken out and you're seeing less that you're able to take home. And so the benefit um, of doing marginal additional work and marginal additional investment is reduced under that
2: type of structure. Um, and, and to what extent do you think the state's really having a lot of revenue this year you know, played into this whole dynamic because um, you couldn't really do this maybe in a year where you needed every dollar?
1: Revenue surplus has definitely played a big role both last year and this year, where last year we saw... A record-breaking number of states enact income tax reductions, more than we've seen in at least two decades. And this year, we've already seen eight states enact laws to reduce their individual and/or corporate income tax rates. And so, definitely having surplus revenue, it has been a big factor because that provides more wiggle room and more of a cushion, so that if revenue, if the estimates of how much a tax cut will cost aren't exactly on, you know, right on the nose. There's a little wiggle room. Rainy day funds are well funded. And so there is room to make these cuts. And a lot of states are at the same time increasing funding for things like education and transportation at the same time that they are returning some of the surplus to
2: taxpayers. It does strike me, though, that some of the flattening and the structural changes to state income tax codes uh, happening this year uh, pose some danger as well. I mean, when you've made fairly dramatic structural changes, uh, couldn't that turn into some revenue disasters in a year or two when the economy takes a dive?
1: I don't think we will see any state end up in a bad fiscal condition because of these tax cuts. For one thing, states have so much of a surplus that they do have plenty of wiggle room to make these cuts. Another thing is that a lot of the cuts are subject to revenue triggers. And I know a lot of states, Kentucky being one of them, were really intentional about making sure that they have the revenue to do this and that tax cuts don't take effect in years where mm-hmm. they there's not enough money to do so. Georgia's another state that has revenue triggers. So I think we're going to see continued growth in these states. That's what revenue departments are projecting. And in years in which there is, if there is a recession in the next few years, I think we will see a lot of states still in a good position to be able to weather it, um, partly because they're on a growth trajectory already, partly because rainy day funds are pretty well funded in a number of these states. and because we've had these couple years of strong growth, I think um, a lot of states are pretty prepared should that occur.
0: That was Catherine Lawhead, a senior policy analyst at the Tax Foundation. Now we hear the opposing view. Kamalika Doss, as I mentioned, is with the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, or ITEP. She sees flat taxes as nothing more than a way to make already regressive tax systems even more regressive.
3: I think one of the main reasons that flat taxes are coming up this year is that some lawmakers are using surplus revenues and concerns about inflation as basically a cover to push for these top heavy tax cuts. You know, it's something that some lawmakers continually push for. If the economy is going well, they say, oh, we can afford to cut taxes. If it's not going well, they say, oh, people need more money in their pockets, um, even though it obviously it, Rarely, it does not benefit low and middle income people, but the surplus has just made it easier to push those through. Um, You know, I think it's important to remember that a lot of those surpluses are fleeting, they're deceptive. States had lowered their revenue estimates at the beginning of the pandemic. And then, you know, we saw unprecedented federal aid, which was obviously a really good thing. Those unemployment insurance boosts, higher match rates for Medicaid dollars. Um, But unfortunately, states are sort of responding to that in different ways. You see some states like Washington state, you know, they're making investments to address poverty, education gaps, but then others are talking about really deep tax cuts.
2: You and you seem to have some real concerns about flat taxes from the perspectives of of equity. So why don't you explain that a little bit? How does a a single rate affect uh, low income taxpayers uh, differently than a high income taxpayer?
3: Yeah, I, I think when we talk about graduated income taxes and flat taxes, I think one really important thing to remember is that state income taxes don't exist in isolation. You know, so if you want your to satisfy some minimal standard of tax fairness, something that everyone would agree on, right? Um, overall, an overall flat system, you actually need graduated income tax rates to make up for the fact that basically all other taxes and tax breaks are regressive. You know, everybody pays sales taxes, everyone pays property taxes, even renters, excise taxes, um, and all of those are really regressive. And then. On top of that, most state tax codes include regressive tax breaks like itemized deductions and tax breaks for capital gains realizations. So when you take all of that into consideration, if you're trying to even get to some remotely neutral system, you actually need those graduated rates.
2: Now, 2022 has also been a big year just for cutting income taxes, whether you have a flat tax or not. Uh, What's your feeling on that? What groups are finding, uh, you know, are benefiting primarily from this sort of tax cut fever that we see in almost every state capital?
3: Yeah, I think I mentioned, unfortunately, I think the people who have already been benefiting the most, um, you know, as we have, you know, skyrocketing income inequality, wealth inequality in this nation, um, people who've already Done really well during the pandemic. We everybody knows this pandemic was extremely lopsided. Um, people who have benefited from, um, you know, shareholder wealth—they're—they're they're also the people who are then benefiting from the tax cuts. And so the, there's the more sort of immediate version of that, like right, like who, where are those tax dollars then going to go? And then there's also um, in terms of. Who's gonna really be hurt by the lack of public investment? Like, I think, again, even those are really gonna hurt like low and middle income people, um, you know, not fully funding education, you know, not updating infrastructure. I think, again, that's that's gonna hurt everybody, but um, it's it's definitely gonna make life a lot more difficult for people who are, you know, at that median.
2: What What are your thoughts about flat taxes when they're sort of paired with other strategies that conceivably blend some equity into the tax code. Um, what So what role maybe could deductions or credits or exemptions uh, play in making a, a flat income tax uh, more equitable?
3: Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that can help. You know, if you paired a flat tax with You know, deep refundable credits. Okay, maybe that changes the distribution, but you're still ending up with really deep cuts. That's going to create some really big structural um, damage in the long term. So, you know, I mean, are there tiny ways to make a terrible situation better? Sure, but it doesn't actually make up for it. I mean, when you're talking about what actually happens when states move to a flat tax rate, okay, like that rate is. It's never higher than that top marginal rate. So really what you're doing is cutting taxes for higher income folks, you know, um, and you have to pay for that somehow. And there are only really two ways to pay for that. You can either increase taxes on low and middle middle income people, you know, which we sort of saw in Kentucky in 2018 when they moved to a 5% flat tax. And really, it was just the top 5% that was paying less. Or you can cut back on public investments either immediately or gradually, Um, over time, like that reduced infrastructure. And then obviously shortchanging those public investments then undermines those pro-growth, that pro-growth argument that's specifically why politicians are saying that they're doing that in the first place. So it just doesn't actually make sense. Um, you know, I think one thing I, re- I really wanted to point to this. So have looked at flat tax states and graduated income tax states empirically, and on average, low and middle income folks actually pay lower rates in graduated income tax states. It's common sense, right? Because if you have flat tax states, you're not raising as much from the wealthy, so you have to raise more from low and middle income folks. So, I mean, let's take middle income folks in Pennsylvania and New Jersey people who may be or households that make 40 to 60 K. So in Pennsylvania, you know, people in that range pay approximately 4% of their income on income taxes, while the same income group in New Jersey pays 1.6%. And that's not just Pennsylvania and New Jersey, you know, we, we actually looked at every single state. Um, and you see that pattern.
2: Proponents of um, tax cutting and of flat taxes uh, continually assert that these kind of strategies improve the economic competitiveness of the state. So do you buy that? I mean, does tax cutting uh, uh, cause a flood of new investment? Does it bolster the employers already uh, in that state? Uh, what, what, what What does the data show us?
3: Yeah, so there's no evidence that shows flat taxes are better for state economies. You know, you can hear some anecdotal data about people and businesses moving to low state, low tax states, but you know, just studies don't support that. There's this really sophisticated study out there by Varner and Young, where they used 13 years of IRS panel data, and they actually followed millionaires as they moved between states. They were able to do the study that no one else has really done before, and they just kind of found there's no meaningful amount of tax flight among high income people. And of course, that makes sense um, intuitively. You know, if you're high income, you don't really need to consider cost of living and you know, you move places where your families are, where, you know, you have business ties. And so I would say the studies that show those obvious linkages between tax cuts and economic growth, they're just not sophisticated because they don't look at both the taxes and then the other side of the ledger, the budget cuts that sustain those tax cuts.
2: And and of course, we've had some examples, too, where states went through a radical tax cutting uh, scenario uh, one remembers Kansas uh, a few years ago. Uh, are, are you concerned about similar revenue problems down the road in states that have made kind of uh, difficult structural changes to their income tax codes?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a that's a huge concern. I think a lot of these states that are talking about, like, I'm just thinking about Mississippi, where they're going to be losing, you know, five hundred thirty five million dollars in revenue and. Yeah, you're, you're talking about a state where, you know, they have not fully funded education, that there are four cities that are under federal consent decrees to stop pollution. You know, they um, like a lot of um, a lot of community colleges in the south, uh, they, they have like less state funding. And so tuition has been going up. And then they also can't do some of the more progressive things that they've talked about doing, like eliminating grocery taxes. Everyone agrees that that is a priority. That is going to be more and more difficult to do over time. And, you know, we're talking about, again, we're talking about a time where there is deep levels of food insecurity, and yet they just will not be able to afford those, like eliminating the grocery tax cuts. And it's, you know, to, to what end, right? In um, to, to basically support the group of people that has already been doing well throughout this pandemic, it just, it just doesn't make sense. And, you know, I think one of the most egregious things about this is that, you know, nobody, there are no... Um, there, there are very few states that are really thinking about the long-term implications of the tax cuts. You know, they're not really looking at, you know, five, ten years out. Like they're just kind of thinking about, okay, you know, we have this surplus right now. But on some of these states, like in Mississippi, that's a supermajority state. So, you know, they're making these permanent cuts based on very temporary. Um, revenue surpluses, and, you know, they're just not going to be able to find a way out when they feel like they actually need one.
0: That was Kamalika Gadas, a state policy analyst at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. Before that, you heard Katherine Lawhead, a senior policy analyst at the Tax Foundation. They spoke with Bloomberg Taxes, Michael Bologna. And that's it for today's Talking Tax. You can find up-to-the-minute news and latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's Talking Tax was produced by myself, David Schultz, and Yuri Nagano. Patrick Ambrosio is our editor. Our executive producer is Josh Block. From Washington, I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening.
3: The number of words in the tax code is estimated to be 1 million about the same length as the entire Harry Potter series. Add in IRS regs, rev rulings, and case law, and it can be a lot. We all need a little help to sort it out. Each week on the Tax Bowl podcast, I talk to the best in the business. And these aren't crazy technical dives. They're interesting and easy to digest looks at topics that matter to you. It's all that you need to stay ahead on the most important tax issues you can subscribe to the podcast for free on taxgirl.com because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't be.